The EU Parliament Foreign Affairs Committee passed a landmark report supporting stronger ties with Taiwan. Stash Butler spoke with Swedish MEP Charlie Vamers about why the EU wants to upgrade its ties with Taiwan. And I speak with German MEP Reinhard Bütikofer, who heads the European Parliament's relations with China, on how EU relations with China are changing. Finally, in today's show, an update on two Delta variant clusters in Taiwan. And I'll tell you why it's hard to be a Taiwanese celebrity. This is Taiwan Insider. been good to Taiwan lately. Poland, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, and Lithuania all have been donating vaccines to Taiwan. A cute name for this was just coined by Taiwan Digital Diplomacy Association, a dumpling alliance. Lithuania has stood up for Taiwan by allowing us to set up an office called the Taiwanese Representative Office, despite sanctions from Beijing. And many EU countries are backing Lithuania's resistance to Chinese pressure. For the first time, the EU Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee also just passed a report calling for stronger relations with Taiwan, including a potential bilateral investment agreement and showing grave concern for Chinese aggression against Taiwan. We spoke with two members of European Parliament about this landmark report. First, Stash Butler spoke with Swedish MEP Charlie Wiemers, who authored the report. What does this report mean for the future of EU-Taiwan ties, and what are its prospects of passing the European Parliament in the coming weeks? Well, the report is a uh, forward-looking document that states the opinion of the overwhelming majority of the EU Parliament, and uh, which can serve as uh, the building stone for future bilateral EU-Taiwan relations. It sets out a uh, clear message to the Commission and the uh, European External Action Service, as well as the member states, to withstand Chinese pressure and stand for cooperation with Taiwan, which is our like-minded democratic partner in the uh, Indo-Pacific. Um, I um, I think that um, the report will receive overwhelming cross-party support in plenary and therefore pass with a very large majority. Why is the EU seeking closer cooperation with Taiwan at this moment in time? Right now we see uh, a rise of Chinese belligerence, disinformation and hostility against the West. And many of the like-minded democratic partners around the world, such as the EU, the US, Japan, South Korea, India and Australia, have come to realize the urgent need to cooperate together in confronting the increasingly overt Chinese bullying. Um, And given Taiwan's own difficult relationship with mainland China, including uh, continuous uh, Chinese belligerence against the island, Taiwan can serve as a very important example of how to withstand Chinese pressure, belligerence, and disinformation campaigns in both uh, the uh, Chinese-speaking world as well as uh, in the English-speaking world while standing strong on on values such as freedom, democracy, and and human dignity. And uh, also, um, Taiwan has a very advanced, robust economy. It's an economy that holds a very strong position in the world economy, and it encapsulates 
a prototype for modernization, digitalization, and economic growth. I mean, not to forget that uh, Taiwan has become a major player in the production of, of uh, semiconductors, uh, leading edge chips. So in its very own right, uh, Taiwan is uh, a, an important economic partner for the European Union. Now, your report calls for increased official exchanges between the EU and Taiwan. What form do you see those exchanges taking? Well, historically, the EU and many member states have been uh, very careful to avoid any high-level exchanges with Taiwanese officials because of Chinese pressure. And my report fully disagrees with that believes that European leaders uh, need to meet with uh, their Taiwanese counterparts publicly and openly. We need to have meetings between our heads of states, our foreign ministers, as well as secretary generals and director generals of our various ministry and ministries and departments in member states as well as uh, in uh, the European institutions. And in terms of bringing, uh, you know, ties and relations perhaps onto a more sort of level and higher level footing. Um, your report also recommends changing the name of the European Economic and Trade Office, which is the current name of the EU representative office in uh, Taiwan, to the European Union office in Taiwan. What would be the significance of this move? Uh, the current name suggests that our relations are solely economic. And I think we need to move away from that. The EU, its member states in Taiwan, share much more than just economic interests. We are like-minded, democratic allies, and that needs to be reflected in all levels of cooperation, including the name change of the EU's office in Taiwan. Now, your report also expresses concern over China's aggression towards Taiwan. How can the EU help to maintain peace in the Taiwan Strait? The EU needs to continue to work with it like-minded democratic allies in the region and around the world, including the United States, Australia, India, Japan, South Korea, to confront this increased Chinese belligerence uh, and uh, also economic blackmail, which uh, really puts a strain on, on the independence of, of the foreign policy of many a small country throughout the world. I very much support increased NATO cooperation vis-a-vis -vis China as well. Um, we need to cooperate not only diplomatically, but also militarily against this common threat. The need to increase trade with Taiwan, as well as other countries in the region, would be an important signal to China as well. The report signals that the EU's relationship with China is changing. Now, I spoke with German MEP Reinhard Bietikofer, who is the chair of the EU Parliament's Delegation for Relations with China. Beauty Coffer has been outspoken on human rights abuses in China, so much so that Chinese state media said he's number one on the list of sanctioned officials, which means he can't travel to China. I asked him how EU relations with China are changing. This is an expression of the, the um, very determined and principled stance that the European Parliament has been taking uh, on China issues um, in recent years. We have voiced very strong, clear criticism of China's uh, atrocious human rights uh, record in Xinjiang or uh, Tibet, 
And we do believe that the turn of the Beijing regime towards more oppressive policies inside China and more aggressive policies in their external relations must be met with uh, a clear dedication of democratic nations to stand up for the values uh, that we all cherish and to defend our interests. And in that regard, uh, we also believe that democratic Taiwan uh, should be considered a partner. You know, you've been very vocal against human rights abuses by China. And uh, China's Global Times even said that you're the number one official on their sanction list. How do you feel about that? that honor. <laughs> Disregard my my personality and just look at my function. I'm the chair of the China delegation. So I am um, supposed to be the prime interlocutor from the European Parliament with Chinese side. If they sanction me uh, because I stand up for human rights, the the message is very clear and and that's also the message from the other sanctions we're willing to have dialogue if you're willing to forego criticism of human rights violations this is not the rules uh, of a, a fair relationship china is trying to impose their own political um will as a precondition for dialogue, and, and that is not acceptable. And uh, I believe that they badly miscalculated. They probably thought that the uh, uh, European Parliament would cave in. The opposite has happened. And uh, now they're, um, they're in, a, in an awkward uh, position, uh, trying to be a bully, and uh, the bluff has been called. And I remember you had a tweet um, when you were put on that sanction list that you could always visit Taiwan. <laughs> Would you like to visit yeah, Taiwan that, soon? That, that became a very popular tweet. Uh, but unfortunately, under the pandemic management uh, regulation, uh, the tweet isn't even true uh, at the moment. <laughs> so I... I think it would be very hard to, to visit Taiwan at the moment. But as soon as um, um, that becomes uh, more feasible again, I, I'm certainly willing to, to pay another visit. The full interviews will be up on YouTube and Facebook. Next up, Stash Butler tells us more about Poland's generous vaccine donations to Taiwan. Poland became the fourth European country to donate COVID-19 vaccines to Taiwan after 400,000 AstraZeneca doses arrived in Taiwan on Sunday. I spoke to Marcin Jezewski, a research fellow at Taiwan Next Gen Foundation, to get the full picture. Why has Poland decided to help Taiwan in this particular way at this particular moment? I would like to emphasize that medical cooperation between Taiwan and Poland and specifically Taiwan's support for Polish medical institutions precedes the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Taiwanese representatives have generously donated equipment to 
neonatal intensive care units and other hospital wards. Even, even, uh, even more notably, Taiwan generously supported the Central Veterans Hospital in Lodz and specifically the cardiology ward in that uh, university hospital. Specifically within the context of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we should bear in mind that Poland received a very big share of what Taiwan decided to donate to the European Union member states. Out of uh, approximately 7 million uh, medical masks that went to the EU, Poland received as many as 1 million on top of uh, 25,000 pieces of other PPE. Therefore, um, it is it is uh, understandable that Poland, in, bearing in mind the importance of its relationship with Taiwan, wanted to reciprocate these uh, continued sustained gestures of goodwill. How does Poland's response, you know, differ from those of its of its Central European neighbors? I mean, we we've seen donations from Lithuania and Slovakia, and on, of course the. Uh, the much-covered news of Lithuania's decision to open a representative office in Taiwan. How is Poland's approach to the to ties between, uh, well, to balancing its relationship between China and Taiwan different to those of its neighbors? The uniqueness of uh, Poland's approach lies in the fact that, it, that Warsaw has been able to simultaneously maintain a positive momentum in developing its ties with Beijing and with Taipei. This, this dual trajectory is something that we have not seen in other Central Eastern European countries. In Slovakia, in Czechia, in Lithuania, we are seeing that political elites uh, at different levels of governance are becoming increasingly more assertive when it comes to speaking, uh, speaking out against uh, China's human rights violations as well as their own domestic disenchantment with the unsatisfactory level of um, economic and other engagement with China. I believe that when it comes to the future trajectory of Poland-Taiwan relations, uh, we can expect a generally upwards trajectory, albeit within strict bounds of uh, adherence to the One China policy. The Polish Foreign Minister, Zbigniew Rao, has just concluded an official visit to Lithuania, and during one of the press conferences, Minister Rao stated explicitly that uh, Poland's stance was clear, that Poland adhered to one China principle, and that uh, he believed Taiwan was a part of China. So despite these positive developments between Warsaw and Taipei, we should acknowledge that this might not be the right time to expect a major policy shift in Warsaw vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, or even um, we shouldn't expect more assertiveness in speaking out against China. You can catch the full interview on our social media channels. Next up, Leslie brings you the latest news with Taiwan's Delta clusters. Taiwan has so far done a great job of containing a COVID-19 outbreak that began in mid-May. Just take a look at this graph. You'll see that cases have taken a steep decline and over the past week, local cases have stayed in the single digits. But now people are concerned about two different chains of infection and they both involve the highly transmissible Delta variant. Two EVA Airways pilots tested positive for COVID last Friday. And although the two pilots are considered to be imported cases, one of the pilots then gave the disease to his son who's in high school. The son's school shut down for two weeks and about 500 people are in quarantine in relation to that case. Next, on Sunday, a kindergarten teacher was confirmed with COVID-19 and now a total of 27 cases are connected to that cluster. Now, health authorities have confirmed that these two clusters involve the Delta variant, but genomic sequencing tells us that they're from two different sources. We'll be keeping an eye on this story for you and be bringing you the latest updates as they happen.
Next up, Leslie Lau explains why it can be tough to be a Taiwanese celebrity and hashtag Taiwan. And before we leave you, here's a look at some of the other news stories that are on our radar. The military is gearing up for the annual Hanguang exercises, Taiwan's most important military exercises. The Air Force held a rehearsal Monday, a last-minute bit of preparation before the exercises begin on September 13th. The annual exercises involve all branches of the military and are designed to test Taiwan's ability to fight off a Chinese invasion. Nineteen Chinese warplanes entered Taiwan's southwestern air defense identification zone on Sunday. This is the fourth incursion by Chinese warplanes into the zone so far this month. Taiwan scrambled jets to monitor the intruding aircraft. Typhoon Chantu is approaching Taiwan and is expected to hit the island over the weekend. The Central Weather Bureau is expected to issue a sea warning for the typhoon between Thursday evening and Friday morning, and a land warning may follow too. And after four months of closure due to COVID-19, Elon's Qingshui Geothermal Park has reopened to visitors. Cabins equipped with hot spring baths remain closed, and barbecuing and camping are also banned as a precaution against a resurgence of COVID. But otherwise, visitors are free to wander the park's steamy grounds. Well, it's good to have you both back in the studio. Um, I suppose since the general theme of our uh, episode this week is Europe. Right, where you're from. Where I'm from, a European <laughs> indeed, or at least half a European now. Um, where would you most like to travel to in Europe? Leslie, why don't you go first? Well, this is, uh, I had a lot of choices because I haven't really ever been to Europe, and when I did, I was a little kid, so I don't remember. Oh. But one place that I do want to go is Paris. Oh, yes. And there's a story behind this, because my brother spent like a month in Paris, and he called me up one day, and he's like, yo, Paris has the best sandwiches. <laughs> and, he, and like sandwiches are his favorite food, so like if he's raving about them, I just have to go see how good are these sandwiches. What's what's fascinating. What sandwiches are like a, really, I never thought just about like any Parisian kind of sandwiches. sandwiches. Like you walk into any French deli, and they will outdo any sandwich you've ever had the United States or anywhere else. I was like, wow, those are some big words. Wow, that's a strong sandwich game. Italy is the same way. Italy's Any same sidewalk way? vendor, their sandwiches are so amazing. Oh, now I gotta go to you Italy. Gotta go both. <laughs> Natalie, what about you? Well, I really like Sweden. Ooh. I actually, the last time I went to Europe, I actually went to Sweden for a day. Was, and I felt like it wasn't enough. I want to go more. Was that in the summertime? It was the, the summertime. Right. Went to Stockholm and all the islands. And there's this old town from, you see buildings from like 17th century. And wow, you saw so a lot for just beautiful. being there for a day, though. We did. But I felt like it wasn't enough. Yeah, whistle stop so. tour of, uh, of Stockholm. Uh, well, mine's, so obviously, you know, I, I'm from the UK. I, I travel to Europe quite a lot because I live geographically very close to it. So I've gone a bit more left field here. I've gone with... Croatia. Oh, Ooh. yeah. That and is a beautiful place. Have you been to I've Croatia? been there. It's oh, really? so beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you know, long sandy beaches, great weather. You know, you get all the kind of attractions of being on the Mediterranean, but it's somewhere I haven't been already. Um, yeah, seems like Definitely a great place it. to go. That's a great answer, man. Uh, well, that's all from us for today's episode of Taiwan Insider. I'm Stash Butler. I'm Natalie So. And I'm Leslie Liao. Make sure to follow us on our social media channels. Yes, like us on Facebook and on YouTube. Don't forget to tweet at us. Our handle is Taiwan Insider, one word. Anyway, guys, until next week, we'll see you around. Bye.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. For the first time, a majority of Americans support sending U.S. troops to help defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. Now, that was found in a recent Chicago Council on Global Affairs survey. And here to talk with me about this interesting development is a prominent expert on Taiwan in the United States, Brown Professor of Political Science at Davidson College, Professor Shelley Rigger. Professor Rigger is also the author of Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island Global Powerhouse. Um, Professor Rigger, it's great to be able to speak with you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So what do you think of this increase of support for Taiwan among Americans? Well, you know, I think it's always good news when Americans are engaged and willing to take a position, first of all, because this is an issue that a lot of Americans don't necessarily have a lot of information about. And in fact, um, asked, you know, what's the nature of U.S.-Taiwan relations? The largest number of people said, I don't know enough to have an opinion. <laughs> so, you know, it's not something that people spend as much time thinking about as I do, and maybe as you do. Right. Um, so, you know, it's always encouraging to kind of see that people are paying a little bit more attention, or at least are willing to voice a more supportive view. On the other hand, I would not give too much um, importance to the changes from the previous survey to this survey, just because I think that some of the results in the survey suggest that this is kind of a pretty thin result, uh, that while it's maybe a kind of gut reaction, yeah, I, I, I want to do something to help out Taiwan. Uh, it, the rest of the survey doesn't really give me a lot of confidence that people are well-informed or are making a kind of coherent case for why the U.S. should, um, you know, maybe make its policy a little bit more favorable to Taiwan. So I think one interesting statistic was that 69% said they favor Taiwan becoming an independent country. And for us, if we were to declare independence, China would definitely invade us. So I think that kind of does show that people don't understand all the consequences of these different questions. Do you agree? Yes, I do. And uh, I also found the wording of the independence question, you know, the, the wording of the question basically says, uh, Taiwan is a self-governed place, even though the PRC claims it, uh, the U.S. treats Taiwan as a separate entity, do you think we should recognize Taiwan independence? It's, it almost seemed like the question was saying, the U.S. treats Taiwan as an independent country, so should we treat Taiwan as an independent country? You know, it was a very leading question, I thought. And it, it gave no sense of the trade-off that you just mentioned that I think <laughs> right. would have maybe, you know, caused people to answer differently. And this is why survey research as a guide to foreign policy is so difficult because very often people don't think about the trade-offs that are involved in a particular foreign policy decision until they're actually faced with the consequences. And then they say, oh my, what, how did that happen? <laughs> so I think we, what, what we see here is we see a, a rising sympathy for Taiwan, a sense of, hey, this is a good place and uh, the U.S. should do what it can to take care of Taiwan. 
And, and what that means is that then the sort of public opinion context, if the U.S. were to have to take some action to defend or, or support Taiwan, would be more favorable. Right. So if you go into a crisis and 80 percent of the people in your country say we don't want to we don't want to get involved, then even if the president recognizes it's in the interest of the U.S. to get involved, it's going to be harder. If you have 70 percent saying, yeah, you know, go for it, then in the moment of crisis, the president is still going to have to make a decision based on national interests. No U.S. president goes to war solely on the grounds of public opinion. But it does kind of change the context. And I, so I think that that, you know, it's not an insignificant finding. It's just one that I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that, you know, uh, Taiwan independence advocates start saying, well, <laughs> Americans all want us to be independent, so we should too. I think, you know, we need to calm down and recognize um, that Americans who give that answer are not maybe thinking through the consequences in a way that they would if, the moment actually arrived. Now, I'm also curious, um, you know, there's been a lot more Chinese military activity around Taiwan. Experts are debating if Beijing is serious about invading Taiwan sometime soon. What is your opinion on that? A lot of discussion of this issue in U.S. policy circles, largely by people who um, don't follow Taiwan particularly closely, and some of mm -hmm. whom I think I'm not even sure how closely they follow uh, China, and certainly not PRC domestic politics. So um, I am more persuaded by positions like um, Paul Hare or uh, Minchin Pei, who are suggesting that you know maybe we need to be a little bit more sober about how quickly we rush to the bandwagon that, you know, China's attacking tomorrow. There's lots of good reasons why the PRC will refrain from taking military action against Taiwan. It is an extremely risky thing for them to do, and they know that. And so I think they're, they, have, they have two problems. They have a military problem and they have a political problem and their military problem is how do we ensure that Taiwan does not slip farther away in particular how do we deter Taiwan independence and I think a lot of the military activity that we see now is aimed at intimidating Taiwanese and kind of keeping Taiwan stuck where it is the political problem of persuading Taiwanese to accept some kind of amalgamation or annexation into the PRC on Beijing's terms, that's a much harder question. And it doesn't actually really have a military solution. You know, you can, you can use force to compel people, but can you actually achieve your goal, which is national unification as Beijing sees it, which is a matter of people's affiliation to the, you know, what Beijing understands to be the Chinese motherland, um, that you that's a political problem and a cultural problem and a social problem that can't be solved with military force. And so, you know, I think we, um, I'm not as panicky <laughs> as some of the <laughs> other people that I talk to, because it seems to me that once again, you know, the, the PRC is holding fire. And the job for us, especially in the U.S., is to not 
force their hand or not cause Beijing to believe that it has no other option than to take a military action. That's interesting. Um, I, I am still curious also about um, public sentiment in the U.S. about Taiwan. It seems that it's growing, right? Can you explain, is there any particular reason or events in the past half year or year that you think has um, influenced public, public sentiment about Taiwan? So one thing that's definitely going on is uh, U.S. favorability toward the PRC is diminishing. And for many people, there is this kind of awareness that Taiwan is a kind of alternative to the PRC, or that Taiwan stands with the U.S. as our relationship with mainland China deteriorates. But I don't know that that's exactly enough to create this upswelling of positive sentiment toward Taiwan. Because knowing that you don't like China or that you know you're upset about things that are happening in China doesn't necessarily give you an awareness of Taiwan as an alternative. Mm -hmm. Where I think the awareness of Taiwan as an alternative has come from is the COVID crisis where many, many Americans um, are learning about Taiwan for the first time. And I, you know, I'm experiencing this directly because people say, oh, you study Taiwan. Well, how come they had such good success against COVID? So, mm. you know, I think that Taiwan's gotten a lot of very positive attention in the U.S. and around the world for its COVID response. I know my friends in Taiwan, they say, oh, yeah, but then we had this COVID crisis of our own. And, you know, yes, but unlike anybody else, you know, you've you've managed to contain and uh, prevent it from becoming uncontrollable in Taiwan. And now uh, it it seems as if the, the COVID crisis in Taiwan has receded and there is the opportunity for Taiwanese to be vaccinated before, you know, another wave comes along. And I think Taiwanese will be vaccinated, unlike many Americans who are, you know, this has just become so political in the U.S. It's really tragic. So I it think is. it's as much the um, positive attention that Taiwan has gained as a result mm -hmm. of the its successful response. And I still characterize Taiwan's response as successful even after this summer, relative to almost every other country in the world, Taiwan's response has been very successful. People in the U.S. know that. And so I think that may be where the awareness of Taiwan somewhat as an alternative to the PRC, but also as a sort of good story in its own right may be coming from. Well, that's great to know, because I, I know that, you know, some people don't even know where Taiwan is or what the country stands for. So you think that it is uh, increasing, this knowledge and um, positive um, understanding of Taiwan is increasing in the United States? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, Taiwan has put a lot of effort into public diplomacy in the U.S., um, advertising, exhibitions, you know, trying to get to know people. But COVID has raised its profile in multiple ways, uh, one being just the amount of media attention that was given to Taiwan's um, positive or effective response to the COVID crisis. But then also so many people who were planning to do things in mainland China, finding themselves looking at Taiwan as this, the place that they could go. So. 
um, all of our students, for example, at Davidson College who were hoping to study Chinese last summer are, you know, they're now looking to Taiwan as the place to study Chinese. Uh, mainland China is kind of closed for business, you know, not, not, not business business, not manufacturing business, still doing plenty of that, but it's not open to visitors, it's not open to students. So uh, a lot of uh, Fulbright scholars who were hoping to do work in mainland China ended up going to Taiwan. That's partly because the U.S. Uh, suspended the Fulbright program in the PRC. So I think that you're seeing a lot more kind of traffic to Taiwan or people thinking about when I get to go, that's where I will go. And again, that's a kind of side effect of COVID. The, the COVID um, pandemic has kind of interrupted a lot of trends that had a lot of momentum, including many Americans wanting to go to mainland China for, th for different things. And I and think Taiwan, Taiwan has also has, raised, has gained awareness as a result of that. Well, that's great to know, and I think that I think we deserve it. <laughs> we I have a lot too. of good things going going for us, and uh, just like you wrote in your book, right? Small island, global powerhouse. It's it's great that more and more people in America know about us and and what we stand mm -hmm. for, right? Democracy and and freedom, and also public health. All these great things. Everybody that I send to Taiwan from among my students my colleagues that I've encouraged to go, um, other colleagues that, you know, find themselves, and my family who have visited me, my friends who have visited me in Taiwan, everybody falls in love with the place. At the worst moment in Taiwan's outbreak, it was still better than where I live in North Carolina. Really? Yes. Yes. Wow. And well, we were thinking, oh, this means it's time to get back to normal because it was so much better than it had been before. <laughs> Well, you know, Professor Rigger, I think, I mean, you're a great fan of Taiwan, I know, and uh, it's great to be able to speak with you about public sentiment in America about Taiwan. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed this. I've been speaking with a prominent expert on Taiwan in the United States, Professor Shelley Rigger, who is a Brown Professor of Political Science at Davidson College and also the author of Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island, Global Powerhouse. science and tech news, it's Stash Butler with The Download. Welcome to The Download from Radio Taiwan International, where we cover all the latest developments in science and technology. I'm your host, Stash Butler, and I'll be taking you through everything you need to know. Today, I continue my conversation with two members of the Taiwan Youth Climate Coalition, a kind of umbrella organization for climate activist groups led by young people in Taiwan. They tell me what climate threats Taiwan is facing and why the government isn't doing enough. All that coming up on The Download. What are the specific climate threats that Taiwan is facing 
I'm so glad you asked me about this. Taiwan actually faces a lot of different type of threats. Uh, what comes up to my mind at first are extreme weather events. Uh, for example, uh, Taiwan experienced the worst drought in 56 years from May to June this year. Because there was no typhoon hitting Taiwan last, last year, and the climate pattern reduced spring rainfall in Taiwan this year. However, uh, after the drought, the floods happened at uh, southern Taiwan right after the end of the drought, uh, which implied the extreme rainfall is now the top climate crisis that Taiwan is facing. Aside from uh, more extreme rainfall and dryness, fewer but stronger typhoons may occur in Taiwan, which is like the greatest threat uh, will happen in the future. Uh, and according to Academia Sinica fellow uh, Xu Huangsheng, he is a great uh, professor also, his report indicates that uh, Taiwan's average annual temperature increased by 1.6 degrees Celsius over the past 110 years, which is above the global average of 1.07 degrees. It's like much more. And in the worst case scenario, Taiwan may lose its winter by as early as 2060. And Taiwan also is a small island around the ocean. So we have to face sea level rising and ocean uh, acidification are like this, this two like phenomena from global warming is going to definitely to be the threat uh, which we need to be respond. I mean, I know, I mean, just living here for the last year or so, it going from from this drought, from absolutely no rain and no water to suddenly yeah. so much at one time, you really see the kind of the extremes coming through. Um, I mean, with that in mind, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is kind of an influential scientific body that advises, um, you know, organizations like the UN on their climate policy, published its sixth assessment report with dire predictions of future warming unless we cut emissions immediately. And that involves, you know, putting an end to new coal power plants and new fossil fuel exploration and development. With this, all, all this new data essentially, is Taiwan doing enough to cut its carbon emissions? Well, the short answer is no, and I'll explain why we don't think it's enough. So, um, as we mentioned before, uh, we want to reach like net zero 2050, which means that by 2050, like countries around the world would like to like have net zero emission uh, that are produced. And in Taiwan, we do have President Tsai mentioning like in the statement that we want to align our goal to net zero 2050. But the statement is not actually enough because it will have to be encoded in the law for it to be enforced. So if it's not in the law, if if it's not in an act, it may just be a statement and people can like do nothing about it. But the problem is that the net zero 2050, the, the path to this goal is not yet written in Taiwan's legislation. So this is one of the things that is not enough. 
And the other side of thing that is also not enough relates back to what Hanwei just mentioned about extreme weathers. Because like at the same time, while we are cutting our emissions, there are also already some natural disasters happening because of climate change. And people get affected by that. So a jargon that sometimes we use is called adaptation. And people can just like understand it as a kind of resilience. So when there are natural disasters, we, we will expect the government to have some policies to help people recover from the disasters and help prepare uh, to face the coming, like maybe unpredictable, but for sure coming natural disasters. And so adaptation is also something that we want people to know of and we want them to, like, it would be the best if people start supporting it to be encoded into a law because Presently, the legislators are already discussing about setting up some new laws to include these concepts into the legislations. And if people support that, the law will be easily to be passed. And so this is definitely something that we want people to support and also know that we need to do more than what we're doing now. Um, I mean, this is a, a question, I suppose. Speaking about kind of Taiwan's policy, I mean, I, I, I've previously talked about um, the anti-nuclear movement and obviously there's a lot of, I mean, Taiwan is going to have two separate referendums essentially on a very similar issue, which is the, the Datan gas terminal and, and the kind of the uh, reopening of the, or, or the opening rather of the, uh, the fourth power plant, or the fourth nuclear power plant. Where does the Taiwan Youth Climate Coalition stand on this issue? Because I know it, it's not a, it's, it's a, it's a difficult one. I mean, I know that from a kind of climate perspective, You'd want to rely, ideally, I suppose, on, on things like wind and solar before you did on nuclear. But at the same time, it will take time for those things to, to grow to the necessary levels. And the nuclear power stations are basically here already. What's your organization's position on this issue? Uh, so let me take this question. Uh, actually, uh, TIC is like a platform for use to do climate empowerment and change the like climate action experience. So since it is a platform, that makes us think that there should be like more more than one options for climate change resolutions. So if you want to know our position, our position is that we respect uh, different solutions for like energy energy transformation. But uh, we won't say that which option is definitely good, because we are want to include different types of uh, voice, and all the solutions are possible to solve the climate crisis. Well, we also think that more and more like scientific data is uh, need to be provided to help us to decide the position. And so for now, we will say like in our organization, different uh, like different members has their own thought about their position on uh, these two like referendum issues. But we are we know it and we accept it. It's like an yeah. op opinion of spectral and uh, we know about it and we accept it and we won't say who is right and who is wrong. 
Just to clarify my question there, Taiwan is set to hold referendums on four questions at the end of this year, and two of them are directly or indirectly related to the question of nuclear power. The first question is a bit more direct. It will ask people whether they think that the government should begin power generation at the country's fourth nuclear power plant. Now, construction on that plant started years ago now, but it was put on hold after the current government came into office because of their opposition to nuclear power. And the second question is a bit more indirect. It asks whether the government should move a planned gas terminal away from an algal reef in northern Taiwan. Now, it's it's an environmental issue, but it's also about Taiwan's pivot away from nuclear power to gas power instead. Anyway, you've been listening to Han Wei Zhang and Yan Xi Chen of the Taiwan Youth Climate Coalition, telling me how climate change means Taiwan faces more extreme weather, and how the government should put its climate promises into law. And that's all we have time for this week. Next week, Yen Chi tells me individual actions against climate change can have a broader social impact as well. That's next week with me, Stash Butler, on the download. Poland became the fourth European country to donate COVID-19 vaccines to Taiwan after 400,000 AstraZeneca doses arrived in Taiwan on Sunday. I spoke to Marcin Jezewski, a research fellow at Taiwan Next Gen Foundation, to get the full picture. Why has Poland decided to help Taiwan in this particular way at this particular moment? I would like to emphasize that medical cooperation between Taiwan and Poland, and specifically Taiwan's support for Polish medical institutions, precedes the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Taiwanese representatives have generously donated equipment to neonatal intensive care units and other hospital wards. Even, even, uh, even more notably, Taiwan generously supported the Central Veterans Hospital in Lodz and specifically the cardiology ward in that uh, university hospital. Specifically within the context of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we should bear in mind that Poland received a very big share of what Taiwan decided to donate to the European Union member states. Out of uh, approximately 7 million uh, medical masks that went to the EU, Poland received as many as 1 million on top of uh, 25,000 pieces of other PPE. Therefore, um, it is it is uh, understandable that Poland, in, bearing in mind the importance of its relationship with Taiwan, wanted to reciprocate these uh, continued sustained gestures of goodwill. How does Poland's response, you know, differ from those of its of its Central European neighbours? I mean, we t- we've seen donations from Lithuania and Slovakia, and on, of course the. Uh, the much-covered news of Lithuania's decision to open a representative office in Taiwan. How is Poland's approach to the to ties between, uh, well, to balancing its relationship between China and Taiwan different to those of its neighbours? The uniqueness of uh, Poland's approach lies in the fact that, it, that Warsaw has been able to simultaneously maintain a positive momentum in developing its ties with Beijing and with Taipei. This this dual trajectory is something that we have not seen in other Central Eastern European countries. In Slovakia, in Czechia, in Lithuania, we are seeing that political elites uh, at different levels of governance are becoming increasingly more assertive when it comes to speaking uh, speaking out against uh, China's human rights violations as well as their own domestic disenchantment with the unsatisfactory level of um, economic and other engagement with China. I believe that when it comes to the 
future trajectory of Poland-Taiwan relations, uh, we can expect a generally upwards trajectory, albeit within strict bounds of uh, adherence to the One China policy. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.